It's a Monday afternoon in the early summer, and I'm sitting at a busy coffee shop in West Harlem. To be more specific, I'm working at a coffee shop owned by Columbia University. Although my choice to work here today is completely coincidental, it is fitting with the topic of today's episode. In 2017, Columbia University Investment Management Company announced its decision to pull investments, or divest, from companies that derived more than 35% of their revenue from thermal coal production. In 2021, the institution updated their divestment plans to include publicly traded oil gas companies as well. Columbia is just one name on a growing list of academic institutions and organizations divesting from fossil fuels. In today's episode, we will dive into this list, who's on it, how they got there, and why that matters. By the end of the episode, we will start to focus on one particular name on the list, Emory University. I'm Hallie Bradshaw, Emory University Class of 2018. And I'm Tyler Stern, Class of 2016. We've spent the last few months exploring the world of fossil fuel divestment and the ways in which universities, specifically Emory University, play a part. Joining Columbia and Harvard are Boston University, Brown, University of Minnesota, Georgetown, University of Southern California, and Emory, just to name a few. This list continues to grow and change, but perhaps best known is Harvard's campaign. They're currently in the implementation phase following the school's announcement that it would be ending their investments in fossil fuels in September 2021. In the past two years, we've um, made tons of really exciting progress. Harvard disclosed to the public that they were investing about 2% of the endowment, which was at the time around $840 million in fossil fuels. And in September of last year, 2021, um, Harvard announced after you know years of tireless organizing on our part um, that they would be um, closing out the investments that they had in the fossil fuel industry. This was such an exciting win for us, but it was also a moment to raise more questions. You know, Harvard made this decision what felt like very suddenly without a lot of transparency. They didn't really provide a timeline for how these investments are going to be phased out. So we were super energized and excited by that moment, but it also raised a lot of questions. So right now we're in this phase where we are demanding that Harvard give us answers on what that timeline looks like to be transparent to the public. That's Jade Woods, a Harvard student and court organizer with Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard. The organization is a grassroots campaign comprised of students, alumni, faculty, in addition to community members in the surrounding Cambridge, Boston area. The three main goals of our campaign were to demand that Harvard disclose the amount of money that it invests in the fossil fuel industry, to sever financial ties with the fossil fuel industry. That's the divestment part, um, probably what we're most well known for. And then the third arm of our campaign's demands um, were to demand reinvestment from Harvard, where they um, take that, that funding, that money that they've been funneling into the fossil fuel industry and direct it into sustainable investment, clean energy, um, community projects, um, and reparations for the, car- the harm that they've caused. Can you explain like why divestment is a worthy cause? You know, why not just kind of pursue and like try to get Harvard to just kind of invest in some of those other initiatives, like making solar panels or just kind of like pursuing options to reduce food waste? Why divestment? That's such a great question. And it's one that's really close to my heart. Um, 
just for a little personal background, I'm from Louisiana. Um, I live in a place called Cancer Valley, which is this, you know, 70, 80 mile-ish swath of land between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, Louisiana, with tons of refineries and manufacturing plants um, that pollute the community. Um, and when you hear about Cancer Alley, you think, how can something like this happen? Like the, the harm seems so clear and, and blatant. Um, but a huge reason why fossil fuel indi industry can continue to operate at the level of harm that they do um, is because they have a huge social license. You know, people in my community and communities like mine around um, the Gulf Coast specifically, and also in other places around the world, um, believe that companies like Dow Exxon, they're part of the community. You know, they'll take care of us. You know, there's like a, a Dow baseball park <laughs> in my hometown. And so they have this huge social license to operate where people think, you know, these are established corporations, they're doing the public good. You know, they've mentioned that they do sustainability also sort of, and so we trust them. And so a huge part of divestment organizing, what we do at Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard and other divestment organizers around the country is say, no, we don't want that social license to exist anymore. Um, we as college students are in a really unique position um, where we can advocate for our universities, which have hugely recognizable names um, and lots of cultural capital to make a strong stance against fossil fuel companies. So, you know, Harvard is, of course, a very famous university that has a lot of power. If places like Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Emory, um, Stanford, you know, the University of California system, um, remove their investments from the fossil fuel industry, they may not make an immediate economic impact, but that's not really the point of divestment. The point is to bring to the public's attention that these companies and the harm that they're doing is no longer socially acceptable. There's a lot to unpack, you know, about Harvard being a cultural leader. Um, I don't think that that's something to celebrate exactly, but it is something to utilize um, for the climate movement for good, hopefully. That's been the most eye-opening part to me as Tyler and I have looked into this is how much of it is the social side of things because I was I was in the mindset that it was all the economic drivers, but I I absolutely hear what you're saying and that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us a little bit about what the process has looked like as an organization trying to push for divestment at Harvard? I know you've touched on it a little bit. Some of the challenges, the ebbs and flows of having an organization advocating for those three areas. One of the challenges, which in my opinion, we've successfully overcome um, is a real one for a lot of student campaigns everywhere, which is just institutional memory. You know, Harvard is, you know, almost 400 years old. <laughs> it's older than the United States of America and many other countries. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of institutional knowledge that, Harvard administrators, Harvard's governing boards have. And here we are students, for the most part, we do have faculty supporters that are wonderful, but for the most part, um, we're a student campaign and we're only here for four years. And if you're like me and joined late in your sophomore year, you're not even organizing for all four years, really. It's more like two and a half. Um, and so 
I think one of the biggest challenge for student organizers is being able to build up a strong base um, that can continue the energy and momentum of your organizing from year to year. And so things just don't collapse when a really big, powerful senior class graduates um, because we've been doing the onboarding, we've been doing the outreach to the first year classes, um, and we have a new cohort coming in. Um, so I think that that's one challenge that's not unique to divestment organizing, but just for, for student organizing in general. I think for divestment organizing specifically, I think that another challenge is the opacity of what we're dealing with. Um, on, a, on a good day, it's kind of difficult to get a corporation to talk about their inner workings. Um, and when you add to the fact that our campaign is alleging that Harvard's investments are immoral and illegal um, because they violate their fiduciary responsibility to the public good, it gets even harder to find information. So I think that our research team, our research side of the campaign has done such a phenomenal job of digging through those minutes, um, the meeting notes, the, the tax filings, everything that they can find. Um, but it's really not a transparent topic. Are there any other strategies you were kind of highlighting some at the end there? Are there any other strategies that you think specifically like aided or kind of led to the success of Harvard's divestment uh, push? Absolutely. I think that one of the most innovative and exciting strategies that we took part in um, was building on the work that our friends at Boston College did in filing a legal complaint. Um, so in the spring of 2021, our campaign filed a legal complaint to the Office of the Attorney General in Massachusetts. And in that complaint, we were alleging that um, Harvard's investments aren't just immoral in the fossil fuel industry, they're also illegal because Harvard is um, a nonprofit charitable institution that um, has a fiduciary legal responsibility to invest in things for the public good, for um, the good of its students. And we were saying that Harvard is violating that responsibility. Um, this is under the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, of MIFA. Um, and so I think that the combination of public pressure, you know, through social media and press releases, alumni pressure, um, we have awesome alumni organizers, faculty, students, and then this new element of legal pressure, I think made a big difference. The legal pressure Harvard applied was assisted by Climate Defense Project, a three-person nonprofit that helps students organize and run divestment campaigns, including the filing of legal complaints against their university for holding investments in fossil fuels. One of the organization's co-founders, Alex Marquard, believed that third-party legal action was an effective way to aid divestment in higher education. Um, I think we all shared a sense that the legal system isn't really doing its job, the political system isn't doing its job, and to the extent that things are happening, it's coming from grassroots protest. So we use kind of a movement-centered approach. We try to respond to the priorities of climate activists rather than being kind of top-down lawyers. So, I mean, what we've been doing lately is putting together kind of these complaints with in collaboration with student campaigns that we filed with state attorneys general um saying that you know 
fossil fuel investments aren't in the public interest. Um, and that's really the basic bargain that we make with tax exempt organizations. Um, if you're not going to pay taxes, you kind of have to further the public interest and that extends to what you do with your money. Um, so in these complaints, we've kind of tried to outline how supporting the fossil fuel industry, which includes, you know, not just extraction, but also misinformation campaigns and attacks on climate scientists, um, a lobbying apparatus, all of that, you know, that is really hard to square with the mission of universities, um, with their research and their education, and, you know, their efforts to create a better world when it comes down to it. And this particular legal argument um, is kind of new. Um, so there's this law, um, the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act. That's what we're invoking in these complaints. Um, it does state pretty clearly that fiduciaries of nonprofit charitable institutions uh, have to invest their money in ways that are consistent with um, the charitable purposes of the institution, which means in this case, you know, their educational mission. Um, and in addition to that, they have to be financially prudent investments. This is something that we think is fairly clear, you know, the way that the law is written. This has been enacted when you've worked with student groups, when you've worked with universities, what has that looked like? And what are some of the barriers you've come across with various groups that you've worked with? Well, intransigence from school leadership um, is, you know, the biggest one. Um, it's been a while since I was in school working actively in, in one of these campaigns, but we tend to hear similar stories from current students. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to get some of these rationales on the record, but to the extent that um, school leadership gives explanations, um, sometimes it's hard to get a handle on what the real cause is, whether what they're saying is, you know, really the whole story. Um, and I sometimes think that um, just the strategy by school administrators is to kind of count on students graduating in a few years and that attrition, you know, kind of weakening the movement. So for that reason, I think it's important for campaigns to create organizational structures that can support you know, transferring knowledge and resources and handoff, and also getting people like alumni and faculty and staff involved, because again, there's that continuity when you have those people as part of the campaign. Alex's recommendation was critical for another one of their university partners. Down the street from Harvard, students at MIT have been campaigning for divestment for nearly a decade. As rising senior Peter Scott explains, maintaining connection and a steady flow of activists was essential. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mentioned since, since uh, 2012, um, students at MIT have been um, pushing for divestment, and um, the first group, Fossil Free MIT, got you know tons of signatures um, from the student body and the community as a whole, and they were um, yeah they they brought they brought it to the administration. Um, the administration eventually saw that there was. Um, you know, tons of support for divestment. Um, and they they said that they would put together a climate uh, conversation committee, which would um, gather ideas from around the uh, campus to put in place in some sort of climate action plan. And um, after, after a few months, um, their committee came together. While, while the committee did not uh, recommend full divestment. It did recommend um, divestment from the dirtiest fossil fuel uh, practices such as coal and tar sands. 
So that's notable. Um, and when they eventually made their first climate action plan in 2015, they acknowledged that fossil-free MIT um, basically spurred the creation of it. However, they did not include divestment in any capacity, even um, e even the uh, recommendation by the committee that they created, uh, which recommended partial divestment. So after this, uh, there there was um, you know people people were not happy uh, to say the least with um, what had happened. Um, fossil free MIT held a sit in that lasted an incredible 116 days outside of the president's office. But unfortunately, um, nothing much came of it. And um, af after, after all that happened, um, after even, you know, multiple letters of support uh, for divestment from faculty with over 100 signatures, um, from, you know, academics and climate scientists worldwide, the administration still did not budge on divestment. So, yeah, the um, so fossil free MIT uh, stopped working on divestment um, shortly after that, and uh, the group that I'm a part of, MIT Divest, we started in 2019, and um, since then we have been uh, renewing the fight for divestment on MIT's campus. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was curious. How did you learn about like that past group? Like, how was that um, kind of I want to say history, but like the learnings that they might have acquired through the process, like handed off or transferred over to you all. That's a good question. There was overlap with people. There's plenty of documentation. You know, we we have everything that they had access to. We we've just sort of been continuing the um the fight. Cool. And so speaking of the fight, why did you pick it up? I mean, like, especially because the last scene wasn't necessarily successful, I guess, in your words, and it, it sounded like it dissolved, um, just to kind of play, you know, doomer here, why engage in this fight for divestment? Yeah, that's a good point. So I think the reason that a lot of us have gotten, uh, gotten into it is because we see that divestment has come a long way at other universities as well. Um, you know, this just because MIT said no to it in the past uh, doesn't mean that there it will never happen at MIT. You know, uh, other, other universities, just to name a few, Harvard most recently, um, you know, Cornell, um, entire, entire cities and even countries like Ireland um, have divested. It's, it's a very large movement with trillions of dollars um, divested so far. So, I think the, this, the students involved um, in the group right now uh, believe that it's something worth pushing for, even if uh, we've received significant pushback from uh, the MIT administration in the past. And uh, we're very hopeful that the future um, will, will bring divestment uh, to our campus. Back at the coffee shop now, I check on the status of Columbia's divestment work. I look at recent headlines and see an announcement that the university will no longer make new investments in private funds that primarily invest in oil and gas companies. While this news is seemingly aligned with previous campaigns at the university and at other similar institutions, there's one key difference. Columbia is expanding their divestment campaign to include indirect investments in addition to direct investments. In other words, Columbia is planning on cutting ties with private funds that primarily invest in oil and gas companies. 
If accomplished, this will put Columbia's efforts in a completely new tier of impact, one that few other universities have joined, including our own. Emory's 2025 sustainability vision states that the university, quote, does not currently hold direct stock or bond in public companies producing fossil fuels, end quote. While it mentions quarterly reviews of Emory's portfolio, the document does not specify the reach of Emory's indirect investments, nor any plans to corral them. When we asked the provost's office to clarify Emory's stance on indirect divestment, they pointed us back to their statement on direct stocker bonds. Join us next episode as we explore the implications of direct versus indirect divestments and how they shape Emory University's impact on climate change. As well, we'll talk with activists to learn more about strategies to push your own school for climate divestment, both direct and indirect.